By the way, if any of you men have a good singing voice and you want to help me lead singing on Wednesday nights, I wouldn't complain, not for a second. Uh, I could use the help up there, and I've got a lot I'm trying to juggle on Wednesday nights. So, any of you men that think you can, uh, you can handle that, uh, let me know. Come talk to me. If you don't have a good singing voice, please don't come talk to me, all right? Although, it um, wouldn't have to be to do as good as me, so... As long as you can carry a little bit of a tune, we'll get by. I'm going to try to work off this lapel. Our main lapel system, our main mic system, got mailed in for a warranty, and uh, this one's not been cooperating all that great. But uh, we're going to try to get by. If I have to, I'll go back up behind the pulpit, and we'll do it that way. Okay, Second Peter chapter one. Brother Joe, if you give me a little more volume, I'd appreciate that. And we're going to read from verse 4 down through verse 8. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. And we'll, it's been a couple of weeks. Last Wednesday we were out because of the snow. And so I'll, I'll uh, try to catch us up a little bit here. Some of you weren't here two weeks ago either, so we'll try to get you caught up and so you know where we're at and what we're doing. Okay, verse number 4 says, Whereby are us... Maybe take me down another hair. I don't know what's going on. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these uh, ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and your virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness Charity, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're looking at this topic in the book of Second Peter, the spiritual fruit of discernment. The spiritual fruit of discernment. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, tonight to understand uh, the book and have a better idea of not only uh, what it means, but also, Lord, uh, how we can go forth and live it and put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Okay, uh, so a um, little history on the book will help us go a long ways here. Uh, Peter wrote, First Peter, most likely he wrote it from Rome. And he, like many of uh, the apostles, had one of his men pen it for him. So he, 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 the Lord dictated it to him, and he dictated it to the guy, and the guy wrote it down. And so 1 Peter was sent out. Uh, and so 2 Peter, oh, by the way, 1 Peter was written to the churches of Asia Minor. Now, if you don't know where Asia Minor is, how many of you know where Turkey is? You know where Turkey is? That's Asia Minor, okay? So there are all kinds of Christian churches scattered, scattered all over uh, modern-day Turkey or uh, biblical time. Asia Minor, and that's who First Peter was written to. It's just kind of not one church, but a collection of Gentile churches. And then Peter came behind and he wrote Second Peter to the same set of churches, and he wrote it while living in uh, the town of Rome. And many believe that uh, Paul, or rather Peter, was under arrest at this point, and he knew that his time to die was coming very soon. And so First uh, Peter 1, uh, somewhere in the middle of the chapter, uh, uh, Peter seems to indicate that his time is short. And history tells us that he was martyred for his faith. He was crucified for his faith. And at his request, he was crucified upside down. 
because he didn't think he was worthy to die the way Jesus did. So uh, he, he was going to die. So this is sort of like, like, like Paul's second Timothy, you know, second Timothy's last book that Paul wrote his farewell address. Uh, this is Peter's farewell address. Now, what's really, really, really fascinating about Peter's books, historically, we know that Peter was the, was the apostle to the Jews. But God had Peter write his two letters to churches that were Gentile. So he spent his whole life ministering to Jews. And then he turned around and he wrote these letters to Gentile churches. So God was saying here that, hey, listen, there is, there is one main thought that works for the Jews and the Gentiles. And I can have, I can have my Gentile guy, Paul, go and minister to the church in Jerusalem. And I can have my, uh, my, my Jew apostle or my Hebrew apostle go and minister to the Gentiles. I, I can cross them and I can use them both ways. But Peter is writing to this church, and so he, he's, he's, he's setting not only up this generation, but the generation to come to be re- generations to come to be ready to deal with false teaching in the church. So let me just recap the first couple of points here, and I believe we are on point number three and objection number two. So we'll work our way to that here in just a minute. But number one, we looked at a partaker. In God's nature. Look down with me quickly. Look down at 1 Peter 1 verse 4. In the middle of the verse it says this. It says that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1 4. Partakers of the divine nature. So God has a nature. What's natural for him. And we're being invited to partake And what are the attributes that make up God's nature? And what are they? Well, they're listed uh, in verse 5 down through uh, verse number 7. What are they? Well, they're faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, uh, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. So those are the eight virtues that are listed here. And we know that charity uh, is the greatest of all of these because of 1 Corinthians 13. But we're to add one to the other. And I described it this way two, two weeks ago. It's like climbing up a spiritual staircase. The first step you take to get saved is what? It's faith. That's the first one there on the list. That word virtue in the Bible, in this passage, is, uh, is translated in, uh, into our modern day word, excellence. So that word virtue means excellence. So once you've gotten faith down... That takes a while, doesn't it? Not just faith for salvation, but faith living. You're to get to a place where you live your Christian life with excellence. And then in the process, you're adding in knowledge. That means you've got to rightly divide the word of truth. You've got to study and read it and go to church and hear it and, and, and talk about it. Um, I've noticed that with some people, when you try to talk to them about the Bible and God, they shift the conversation away from that as fast as possible. I'm talking about even people who go to church do that. Then there's other people. You can't talk to them about anything without them bringing it back to God. They spiritualize everything. And I would rather be around someone that spiritualizes everything than secularizes everything, right? Uh, but, uh, but knowledge. And the more you walk with God, the more you think about God, uh, the more you read the Bible, the more you pray, the more you can't help but just 
make that part of who you are. Then you add to your knowledge temperance. That word temperance carries with it the idea of self-control. It's easy to control yourself when there are no temptations around. It's much more difficult to do that when you're surrounded by them. But temperance, you add to that patience and then godliness Brotherly kindness and charity. Now, what is the end result? And, and I don't know that I'm doing this justice. But uh, what is the end result of, of, of learning these eight traits? Well, verse number uh, eight tells us. Look there. And this is really the where I get the title of the message. For if these things be in you. What things? These eight things we just went through. If they be in you, if they're part of you, if they define who you are and abound, they're rich inside of you, they're overflowing out of you, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. How is it that some people fall prey to false doctrine or false teachers? How is it that happens? Can I tell you how it happens? They don't know Jesus Christ well enough. The better you know Jesus, the harder it's going to be for anybody to dupe you with false doctrine. The more you walk with God, and I don't mean just know Him academically, you know Him in here. The harder it's going to be for anybody to fool you. So, the question comes down to this. How well do you know the Lord? Now, I've been in personality-driven ministries where uh, the people follow a personality. And they'll say, the preacher says this, and the preacher says that, and the preacher says this, and the preacher says that. Don't you dare walk out of here and say, Pastor Lejeune says, unless it's been backed up with Scripture. Because that's what, that's what it comes down to. What does the Bible say? And we don't want to follow personality. We want to follow biblical principles. A partaker in God's nature. So the rest of the book, Peter is going to deal with apostate or false teachers. The word apostate means those who sow false doctrine. Okay, Apostate teachers that have worked their way into these churches. And Peter is going to warn us against these same false teachers working their way into future churches even beyond his lifetime. So, number one, a partaker in God's nature. I wanted to take just a moment there because it really does set up the rest of the Bible study. Number two, we looked at the purpose of the epistle. The purpose of the epistle, verse 12 through 15, Peter basically says, I'm writing this to you to straighten out what is true and what's not. To correct that which has been called into doubt by these false teachers. And also for the, this epistle to be read by all future churches in the church era until Jesus comes. And so that's the purpose of the epistle. I'm going to go up behind the pulpit. This thing isn't working. So I'm sorry I have you all sitting over here. I'm going to be up there. But uh, that's how it goes. Hopefully by next week we get our system back. Okay. Number three, uh, we get the, the protest against apostolic doctrine. The protest against apostolic doctrine. So now Peter's going to dive in and he's going to talk about these, uh, these different objections that these preachers are getting in and, uh, they're, they're, they're creating a stir over these particular 
uh, uh, sticking points. They're going to the churches and they're calling into question the doctrine of all three, really of all of the apostles that have uh, written epistles that are becoming part of the canon. Okay, objection number one we looked at was this. You guys made all this up. You guys made all this up. Look at verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Meaning we didn't just make this stuff up. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So these guys are trying to say, go around and say, you can't listen to Peter and Paul and Cephas and Barnabas and, 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 and James and John. They're a bunch of phonies. They made all this stuff up. They don't know what they're talking about uh, when it comes to the power of Jesus Christ. It's funny because they're in these Jesus communities of their churches and they're trying to undermine the foundation of the church. And again, if you want to drop a church, just attack its foundation, attack uh, the doctrines of Jesus. So Peter's response can be found in verses 16 through 18, or really 16 through 21. And the first thing he does is he shares his personal account in 16 through 18. And he talks about, he says, hey, look, um, I was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw Moses and Elijah on the Mount with my own two eyes. Don't tell me that I'm wrong to tell you that Jesus is God. And I saw him transfigure into his godlike state before my very eyes. And then if that's not enough, 20 and 21, he says, uh, let me also share this with you. Prophetic fulfillment, prophetic fulfillment. He says this in 20 and 21. You can go back to the the prophets They predicted Jesus would come. And so I'm only sharing with you that Jesus is the fulfillment of what the prophets promised us. This isn't this isn't like um, it's too hard to figure out. Hey, put the puzzle together and you'll see that the puzzle pieces uh, spell the name Jesus. That's what the Old Testament teaches us, that Jesus is the fulfillment of what was to come. So when they said, you guys made all this up, Peter said, I'm going to point back to the Old Testament. I'm going to point back to the prophets and tell you that that backs up what's being said here. Uh, the second objection we began looking at and we had to stop in the middle of because uh, we ran out of time. And so we're going to dive into this and spend quite a bit of time here uh, tonight. Notice the second objection. There is no divine reckoning. There is no divine reckoning or there is there's not going to be a judgment day. You're not I'm not going to have to give an account for the way I'm living. These preachers were actually getting up these fake preachers, these false preachers. I believe the term that Paul used to describe this crowd was super apostle, <laughs> almost in a sarcastic way. OK, um, uh, there's some sarcasm in one of his books. I believe it's Galatians talking about these, but uh, these folks. But they were actually getting up and saying there's not going to be a day where you have to give an account to your life to God for the way you've lived. And Peter says that's just not true. Now, why would someone have a motive to get up and tell the church There is no divine judgment. The reason is they're living in sin. And they don't want to face God for it. 
The major reason why most people are atheists, at least in my findings, I understand that apart the whole comparison is not logical or accurate, but in my experiences, those who I have met that have admitted to me they're atheists, it has been my strong opinion that they're atheists because they're living in sin and they've just dismissed a moral judge. Do you know there are people who are religious but still don't believe in a day of reckoning? Now, I don't know that there's anything that is more terrifying and troubling to me than to know that I'm going to stand in front of God and give an account to Him for the way I pastor this church, the way I husband my wife, the way I fathered my children, uh, the, the way I handled my friendships. Wow, the way I handled my own life, my own Christian life outside of all that, I'm going to have to stand one-on-one, mano-a-mano, and give an account. There's nothing more that maybe keeps me straight, on the straight and narrow than that. Uh, I think that's a healthy fear. I think that's important. But these guys hadn't done that. In fact, they were covetous and they were adulterers. If you compare this with Paul's apostle, Paul's epistles, Paul accuses them of, and I believe Peter indirectly accuses them of, of being uh, money-grabbing preachers. Money-grabbing preachers. They were going in and they were saying all the things that needed to be said in these churches so they could line their pockets and get rich off the back of these poor Gentiles who were just struggling to get by. And on top of this, they were living in sexual sin. Uh, look with me at chapter 2. Let me find the verse here. Okay, we'll get to the verse here in a minute. Uh, but, but Peter doesn't have very good things to say about these folks. And he begins with his response by talking about, oh, it's chapter 2, verse 14. That's it. Look there. Having eyes full of adultery. Speaking of this crowd. Having eyes full of adultery. And that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. And heart they have exercised with covetous, there's that word covetous, money grabbing, practices, cursed children. So this is the crowd that's going into these churches pretending to be preachers. They're adulterers. They have their women on the side. They're lining their pockets with dirty money. They're giving a filthy lucre. uh, And and, and they're telling, they're getting them telling the churches there is no divine reckoning. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, and we get the idea here. But there were false prophets among the people, even as uh, there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that uh, bought them. Uh, and bring unto themselves swift destruction. Now, that word Lord there, it means denying the master. Denying the one that they're going to have to give an account to. And the reason why we know that that's the false teaching is because Peter's about to rattle off three examples of times people sinned against God and had to face a reckoning. In verse number... Uh, verse number four, it says, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, that is a reference to the angels, uh, or at least uh, the the idea of the angels in Genesis six, where the sons of God uh, uh, slept with the daughters of men uh, right before God destroyed the earth. And uh, there's a book uh, called uh, 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 the Gospel of Enoch or the Gospel or, or rather uh, uh, first Enoch, I believe it is. And the, that is the account in there. Many theologians believe and I'm not 
necessarily sure about this, so if you feel strongly against this, it's okay. Don't crucify me. Don't hate me, okay? For if God spared not the angels, many believe that that is referring to that group of people. But the point here is that God took these angels and cast them directly into hell. They weren't let off the hook. They committed sin against God. They were very defiant against God. They had to face the wrath of God and, and, and suffer judgment. Look at verse 5. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So in Genesis 6, you have a bunch of people who decided to thumb their nose at God and live, live how they wanted. We looked at this a couple of Sunday mornings ago, but God collected all of them together and killed them with a flood and saved Noah. So was there a reckoning with the angels? Was there a reckoning with the world prior to uh, uh, other than Noah uh, for their sin? There was. How about with Sodom and Gomorrah? Was there a day of reckoning there? Well, then there is a day of reckoning coming for all of us where we will also give an account. The beautiful thing about these is that God spared Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah and God spared Noah uh, out of that world and God will spare you from eternal damnation if you put your faith and trust in him to save you and you'll put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So is there a divine reckoning? Absolutely, there's a divine reckoning. And Peter's response here uh, to this. So uh, objection number two, there is no divine reckoning. Peter's response, God is just. Uh, look at the Old Testament. God is just. Look at the Old Testament. Examples given angels, Noah and Lot. Okay. Um, there's a verse in Matthew that says this, by their fruits, ye shall know them by their fruits. Ye shall know them. Um, I want to show you how strong Peter was against these people. There is some heavy, heavy language thrown out by Peter against this crowd. It begins in verse 10. Look here. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. All right, I'm going to take just a, a break here, okay? Um, if a religious leader, I'm not going to call him a pastor because I think that's not being fair to the title. If a religious leader will just get up and politician bash nonstop, that could be a sign that there's a heart problem here. Okay, Paul told Timothy that we are to pray for our leaders. Paul told Timothy in Romans 13 that they are in the place of God to exercise his judgment. And this was with a group of politicians that were far worse than ours. Um, I don't think it's healthy for a Christian to be consumed in politics. I, I think Christians need to know what's going on in the political world so that they can vote appropriately, vote their conscience, vote as a Christian first. OK, vote as a Christian first. But I don't think that you need to get on social media and just bash politicians. I don't think that's in line with what the Bible would have you to do. Um in today's day and age, with all of the ridiculousness going on on a moral level with our politicians, there's nothing wrong with getting on social media and taking a stand for biblical right. But it is wrong for you to get on there and just hate on a person. 
While I'm on this, can I just encourage you as Christians to be circumspect in your political views? Be loyal to your political principles, not to political personalities. Don't fall in love with a person. Be in love with what is right and let the Bible be your guide. As we hit divisive issues in this country, whether it be immigration, uh, we talked about the LGBT movement a couple of weeks ago in church uh, uh, on a Sunday morning. We look, we, uh, there are several other issues facing our country. Abortion. Uh, uh, there are socialism versus capitalism. You have all of these things that are right in the forefront of our in our countries at a very pivotal time. Can I encourage you before you choose what your opinion is to turn to the pages of the Bible and let your opinions be based off of this, not based off what some personality on your favorite news station says. Let this be the guiding light. And uh, when it comes to talking about dignitaries, hey, listen, uh, I can't I don't know that there's anybody in the state that disagrees with this state's two senators more than I do. There's no position they have that I would agree with. Can I tell you something? I pray for them every week. I pray for their souls every week. And I don't pray God to strike them dead. I pray for God to save them. So pray for your politicians and 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 ask God how you can reach out to them. Uh, But but he continues. So this is a sign. If somebody's getting up and speaking evil of dignities, they're putting down government officials. And again, you have to remember, Peter's writing this from prison while Nero's getting ready to execute him. And he says, don't speak evil of dignities. Don't despise your government officials. But he goes on, verse 11, uh, whereas angels which are greater in power and might bring not railing accusations against them, politicians, before the Lord. But these, speaking of these apostates, look at the language here, as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it a pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. They have taken their sin and they've made it fashionable. They've made it look good. They're sporting it in front of you. They're bragging about their sin in front of you. And they've even found a way to spiritualize it. Boy, we see that today. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling uh, unstable souls and heart. Uh, They have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, uh, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam. I preached a whole sermon a couple of years ago about the doctrine of Balaam. Uh, Basically, it's a doctrine that gets people to commit sexual sins. This is what they're following. The son of uh, Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But uh, here's where the real strong language which comes in, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumbass speaking the man's voice forbade the, uh, forbade the madness of the prophet. These are they're being compared to this animal. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the, mit, uh, the mist of darkness is reserved forever. He's saying these false teachers that are getting up and telling you there is no day of reckoning. They are going to burn in the pit of hell. That's what he's saying here. 
So you be very careful who you let influence uh, what you believe. And uh, while while we're on this, the last half of the or the last uh, part of the chapter we haven't read yet. I'll give you a verse here to moan it. They what they were doing, uh, the way they were spiritualizing this is they were taking Paul's epistles that talked about Christian liberty in Galatians. And they were saying, see, we're free to live however we want in Christ. They were saying, "Hey, we can uh, we can sleep with who we want to, and and, and we can uh, uh, we can we can take money whenever we want to, and we can drink whatever we want to, and act however we want to, and you know what? We're, we we've got liberty. Look down at uh, verse number nineteen. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption." Yeah, I'm, I'm free in Christ. I, I can sleep around with who I want to. You know what? Your sleeping around has put a chain around you and you can't get away from that. That, the, that alcohol that you can't, that you just drink down and say free in Christ. Well, can you set it down? No, because you're chained to it. That, those covetous money grubbing ways, you are enslaved to that. You are in, look at the last two words of 19. You are in bondage. You are in bondage. We looked at the grace of God all day Sunday morning. Now that fits in right here because what they were doing is they were preaching the grace of God. They were saying, we have grace. We can do what we want. And what did, again, what did Paul say in Romans 6? Shall we sin? Right? Are we going to take advantage of God's grace? God forbid. We can't do that. And that's exactly what they were doing here. They were taking advantage of God's grace and they were twisting the Bible out of context to support their style of living. Now, please hear what I'm about to say. Okay, I want everybody here to hear me say this. Christians have a habit of excusing a sinful habit in their life by pointing to something good that they do. Just because you are a soul winner does not mean you get to live like the devil and smoke pot or or fornicate or or run around with with with, with crowd that's getting you to do wrong or watch filth on TV. You don't get to say I'm a good Christian because I share the gospel while on the other hand you're living like the devil. You don't get to do that. God in heaven is not going to judge you when you stand before Him based on your righteousness. He's going to judge you based on your fallacies. So if there's an area of shortcoming in your life, uh, uh, by God's grace, please work on it. Please work on it, but don't excuse it. I love how uh, Peter ties in the Old Testament here. Look at verse number 21. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Then after they had known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Look at verse 22. But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit, Proverbs 26, 11, and the sow, or the pig, that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. They were saved right out of sin, and they ran right back to it. They ran right back to it. Dog returning to their vomit. The pig returning uh, to wallowing in the mire. So, is there a divine reckoning? I think Peter's strong statement is yes. And don't let people lead you down a path to believe, oh, it's God's grace. I can just live however I want. No, it's not. 
what were the what were the sub points under our actions Sunday, uh, Sunday night uh, or the our actions because of God's grace? Uh, God, uh, grace constrains us, right? Keeps us from sin. It compels us, and then in time it changes us. So uh, if you're not seeing growth or change in your Christian life, then you're not living within a system of proper grace. So don't abuse God's grace. And so these men were not only uh, accusing the apostles of making all of this up and saying that there is no divine reckoning, but chapter 3, Peter turns his attention to one last year. If Jesus is coming, then what's taking so long? If Jesus is coming, then what's taking so long? Only chapter 3, verse 1. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both uh, which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So they're saying, hey, where are you at, Jesus? What's taking you so long? Are you sure he's even coming? Now, be totally honest with me here, okay? How many of you have ever said, it's been 2,000 years. And we've been looking for him every day for 2,000 years as a church. Is he? Maybe he's not actually going to come. How many of you have ever had that thought? I'm going to raise my hand. I've had that thought. Okay, I have. Um, He's coming. And Peter is going to address that concern right here. And he, he offers two responses. All right. Here's the first response. You lack perspective. You lack perspective. Look at chapter three, verse eight. But beloved, and this is Peter assuring the churches, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. What is maybe the best word to describe God? I don't know that it comes down to one word. I'll tell you a really good word to describe God. Eternal. Right? Infinite. Without limit. Um, Do you remember when you were five, looking forward to your sixth birthday? How that, some of you are like, I can't remember that far back. Okay, that was a long time ago. You remember when you were 29? (laughs) Just teasing you. I can't remember that either. No. um, When you're five, a year is a long time. Right? When you're 50, a year is not long at all. I'm 35 and a year isn't that long anymore. When I'm 50, it'll be even less. How short is a year for God who's lived in eternity past and will continue to live into eternity future? To him, what seems like a day to us is a thousand years. And a thousand years is just a day. So yes, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended back to heaven. 2,000 and change. To him, it's just been a couple days. Just been a couple days. You lack perspective, he says. You're looking around going, well, all the apostles are dead. And the fathers of the church are dead. It's been a long time since that promise was given where Jesus said he was going to come back. 
And he isn't coming back. So maybe he didn't mean it. And Peter says, you lack God's perspective when it comes to time. The second uh, response Peter gives is God is patient. God is patient. Now, I love verse 9 because I quote it a lot, but let's look at it in context here. Remember, the concern is Jesus, is he, is he coming back or isn't he? Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Do you know why it's taking Jesus so long to come back? Because he's trying to build up the amount of people that are going to be saved in the church age that are going to heaven. God is being patient. That is why he's the Bible says right here that he is long suffering to usward. And for then uh, for all of our Calvinists friends that want to believe that only certain people are chosen to go to heaven and not everyone else. Go ahead and jump through some weird theological loops to explain this one. Not willing that any should perish, any should perish, any should perish, but that all All should come to repentance. I think it's God's desire for everybody to go to heaven. Amen. Um, God's being patient. Why hasn't he come back yet? Because the days is a thousand years to him and a thousand years is a day. It's just time is nothing to God because he lives outside the realm of it. And because he's being patient, he's trying to see as many people get saved as possible. So those are the protests and that's how Paul answered them. Uh, Paul said to these uh, churches, listen, yet you're going to face this in uh, the first century church. Can I tell you something? We're still facing these same objections today, 2000 years later. One thing I've learned is that Satan really hasn't learned any new tricks. Right. Um, Let's see. Rose, what grade of you teach fifth grade or sixth grade? You work with K through six. Okay. Is there is there anyone here that teaches the same grade of school? You did for years. What grade did you teach? Sixth grade? You know what you get to do every year? You get to teach the same material. Right? You may switch up the way you teach it, but it's the same material, same concepts. Year after year. You know why? Because your class changes. Satan is watching people come and go, come and go, come and go. And as new people enter the scene, he just keeps using the same old tricks. He's been doing it for thousands of years. He says, okay, class, here's this temptation. It got people to fall 4,000 years ago. I bet I can get you to fall with it now. And he'll, he'll, change, he'll change the methodology up a little bit. Like you change. I'm not calling you Satan, Rose. Okay, I promise. Um, uh, he'll change the methodology up. She's been picking on me hard for like weeks. So now I'm going to get her back. And I got the cool pits to do it. Um, uh, he'll, he'll change the methodology up. But he'll, he, 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 it's the same old tactics. Now, let's finish the uh, outline here. Number four, notice the promise of the day of the Lord. Let me hit this quick here. The promise of the day of the Lord. And so Peter assures the church and the, and, and the church, which is also us. The church is in Asia Minor, but this would apply to us today. Yes, Jesus is coming. There's going to be the rapture. There's going to be that where he comes back in the clouds, just like he ascended. And so don't lose hope. Let me give you three thoughts on A, B and C below this letter. A, it's imminence. It's imminence. That just means it can happen at any moment. Look at chapter three. Verse number 10, and this is one of the reasons why I am a pre-tribulationalist, meaning I believe Jesus is going to come before the tribulation begins. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. 
the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So this era, a lot's covered in this one verse. Jesus is going to come back like a thief in the night. Seven year tribulation. Revelation tells us thousand year millennial reign. And then he's going to bring in the new heaven and the new earth. But the point I want to get at right here, we'll look at the rest of that in just a moment, is that his his return could be at any moment. Okay, his return could be at any moment. He could come back right now. He could come back tomorrow. He could come back while the Yankowskis are in Florida. I hope he comes back while you guys are here and there's two feet of snow on the ground. Uh, but he could come back at any moment. And so be ready for his return. Someone once said, uh, uh, dream as though you'll live forever. Live as though you'll die tomorrow. Okay, dream as though you'll live forever. Live as though Jesus is coming back tomorrow. It's a good way to live your life. Letter B, it's intensity. It's intensity. Now, I, I read some uh, some commentaries on Second Peter 3, and I got a, a good chuckle because I love to see how people uh, bend, bend words and jump through, uh, do mental gymnastics, jump through hoops to try to explain away what this means. To me, I just take this literally. Okay, look at verse number 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the Lord or the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Now, I've heard people try to explain that away as this is a metaphor. No, this is not a metaphor. This planet is going to burn up. God destroyed it with water. Back in Genesis 6, He's going to destroy it with a fire one day. And He's going to give us a new heaven and a new earth that has never been tainted by sin. And uh, heaven's been tainted by sin with Lucifer. And this earth has been tainted by sin from Adam's fall. And God is going to do away with those and, and create a heaven and earth for us all to live in that's never been tainted by sin. It's going to be intense. It's going to be the greatest explosion. Uh, for all those that believe that a Big Bang explosion brought in the planet... No, but a big bang explosion is going to terminate the planet. Okay, they just got the big bang on the wrong end. Letter C, notice our incentive, our incentive. Look at chapter three, verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him. Here's the goal of the Christian in peace. Where there is sin, there is no peace. Where there is no sin, there is peace. So in peace, without spot and blameless. If you can live without spot and blameless, you'll live with peace. Verse 15, uh, and account that he um, uh, that the long suffering of our Lord uh, is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. I love how God does this. If anyone questions the, the portion of Scripture that belonged to Paul, Peter confirmed everything Paul wrote was right by endorsing him here in the end of 2 Peter 3. Um, then look down at verse number 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to get into that. I would say go listen to the hour and a half, hour and 45 minute of preaching from Sunday on grace. Uh, but what is our incentive? It's to live peacefully. It's to live without blameless and spot. It's to be holy. Uh, and God's grace will push you 
to clean your lifestyle up. At least it ought to if you're living under it the right way. Spiritual fruit of discernment. As you walk up the staircase of 1 Peter 1, 4 through 8, you get to a place of having the fruit of discernment. And you'll know what is right teaching and what is wrong teaching. So let's grow in the Lord together. Amen. Let's stand together.